0: What do you love about music?
1: To begin with? (laughs) Everything.
2: Putting on a great show is the most important thing you can do. One great rock show can change the world. Welcome to Sound Opinions from Chicago Public Radio and American Public Media. I'm Jim DeRogatis, the pop music critic at the Chicago Sun-Times. And I'm Greg Kott. I write about rock and roll for the Chicago
3: Tribune. Today on the world's only rock and roll talk show, we're going to sit down with psychedelic rockers, The Flaming
2: Lips, to help us explore their 25-year history. Then it's my turn to add a track to the Desert Island Jukebox.
3: You're listening to Sound Opinions, and now it's time for some music news.
2: kids, that is not the soundtrack to a Cadillac commercial. I mean, it was, but before that, it was the signature song by one of the greatest bands in rock history. I know you are on the same page as me about that, Mr. Cott, and Led Zeppelin is reuniting, woohoo! because nobody stays broken up. Doesn't matter if they're dead, doesn't matter if they're century old, doesn't matter. This is for one show and one show only, they say. Led Zeppelin is uh, reuniting John Paul Jones, Robert Plant, and Jimmy Page with... Jason Bonham, John Bonham's son, because Bonham, of course, uh, the most innovative drummer in the history of rock and roll, I think it's safe to say, is dead. So, sort of Zeppelin, three-quarters of Zeppelin, to pay tribute to the founder of Atlantic Records, Ahmet Erdogan, who died last year. This is a big concert that's going to take place in London on November 26th at the O2 Arena that will also feature Pete Townsend and Bill Wyman of the Rolling Stones. Zeppelin, of course, were hugely fond of Erdogan, not only for signing them to Atlantic Records, but for promoting so many great blues musicians who they love throughout their career. They're saying this is the only thing that could get them back together, although it's inevitable, Greg. You know. The show's going to go, quote, unquote, so well. Yes, and the fans are going to be so receptive that they cannot be denied, and the inevitable worldwide reunion tour. I'm betting any money is going to happen shortly thereafter. And I'm sorry, Jim, you cannot call this Led
3: Zeppelin. Just like the Who calling themselves the Who after Keith Moon died, no, it is not Led Zeppelin without John Bonham.
0: Because when the sun shines, we shine together. Know that I'll be here forever. Then I'll always be your friend. Took a note now, sticking out.
2: Greg, that is the 24-year-old acoustic singer-guitarist Marie Digby. Digby is the YouTube phenomenon of the moment, covering... Rihanna's R&B smash umbrella we've been reading a lot about these lately artists coming from nowhere and because of the power of the internet suddenly becoming superstars except this one as the Wall Street Journal recently revealed in a kind of interesting expose that this whole thing was engineered from the beginning she's had two web pages and on both of them she's claimed not to be signed to any label and nevertheless she was signed by Hollywood Records which is owned by the Disney Empire way back in 2005 18 months before She took off on YouTube and this whole campaign to launch her on the net was carefully engineered by her major label to make her look like a grassroots out of nowhere (laughs) star to use the power of YouTube and the Internet buzz to get her to stardom. The clip's been viewed 2.3 million times. She's appeared on on that awful MTV program, The Hills. Her music's been featured there, you know, and it's supposed to have come. It's supposed to have been every girl any girl yeah. and, and become a star and instead the whole thing was orchestrated by Disney just like all those horrible you know, teen pop bands they give us by making them stars first on their TV shows.
3: It shows you uh, what a sham the major labels have become what the record industry has become when Digby says herself I didn't feel like it was something that was going to make people like me when she talked about her major label association, yeah, She was so lying words, about
2: being on a label because people weren't going to like her.
3: It used to be like the dream of every up and coming artist was to get that big major label deal and now we have artists who are saying this is like a taint. It's like, okay, I, I don't look as cool if I'm signed to a label. It's much better to come up through this grassroots way. Of course, the major labels fumbling around, trying to figure out how to co opt this, have, have bungled it once again because here is clearly a fake that has been exposed. And now, you know, Digby's career, her 15 minutes are, you know, you can hear the clock ticking right, in the Right, exactly. It's over. That's In a Silent Way, the title track from Miles Davis's record from the late 60s. That was a record that was a shock to the jazz community. And that song in particular was composed by one Joe Zawinul, Viennese-born musician, dead at the age of 75. We're paying tribute to Joe here because, Jim, I think he was a not only a huge, huge jazz musician over the last 40 years, but his influence on the rock world was profound. Not only playing with Miles Davis on In a Silent Way, also playing with uh, Cannonball Adderley in the 60s, writing his classic tune, Mercy, 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 working with Miles on In a Silent Way and Bitches Brew, two very important albums that saw the jazz world looking at rock and reflecting back on the rock world and, and, and bringing some new ideas into rock as well. Yeah. When Miles assembled the band for the Bitches Brew session, he said, I've assembled the best damn rock band mm. in the world. And in that number were Wayne Shorter, John McLaughlin, Dave Holland, Chick Corea, Jack DeJohnette, and Joe Zawinol. So Miles was clearly loving what he was hearing in rock music, specifically the music of people like Sly Stone at the time. He was Hendrix. trying to bring and Hendrix as well, trying to bring some of that energy into what uh, he was doing in the studio. Zawinul, the keyboardist, was a key part of that transition. You know, the jazz purists hated, hated, hated this stuff. They wrote off Miles after In a Silent Way and into his 70s experiments. Uh, they really didn't love what he was doing, but Miles was uh, ahead of the game as it turned out, and Zawinul was too. Zawinul broke off from Miles with Wayne Shorter to form Weather Report. And I think, Jim, when you talk about jazz-rock fusion...
2: In the 70s, I think Weather Report is the first uh, well, band that comes to mind. Absolutely. To bring it back to Led Zeppelin, you know, there was a period in the 80s with all those awful hair metal bands when Led Zeppelin was being denigrated because they led to bands like Kingdom Come, yeah. right? <laughs> to blame uh, Zawinol <laughs> and Weather Report and Bitches Brew for the dreadful jazz rock fusion of today, yeah. you know, uh, and for stuff like Dave Matthews would be wrong. Yes. Because there was a moment in time when it was a good idea and it never got better than Zawanol with Weather Report.
3: Absolutely. Zawanol, like Stevie Wonder, was bringing the Synthesizers and the electronic keyboards into the forefront of the instrumentation. He was also very important in, in, in introducing world music into the jazz yep. lexicon, and he was bringing that energy of rock into the rhythm section. When Jaco Pistorius joined uh, Weather Report in the late 70s, they were never better. Their best album was Heavy Weather in 1978, went gold, actually had a radio hit. And when you think radio hit and jazz, you immediately think cheese ball. Well, I don't think there's anything cheese ball at all about Birdland. I think this song still sounds great. Got the energy of rock. It sounds like, uh, one, as one critic called it, an electrified global carnival. All these different influences come together. Joe Zawinal wrote the track. His keyboards are at the forefront. Let's hear it. Birdland from Weather Report in tribute to Joe Zawinall on Sound Opinions. That's Joe Zawinall and weather report with Birdland from 1978. Joe Zawinall dead at the age of 75. You're listening to Sound Opinions from Chicago Public Radio and American Public Media. We are here with Wayne Coyne and Stephen Drozd of the Flaming Lips. Guys, welcome to the show.
4: Hello, everybody. Hi, Greg. Uh, there's Hi, there's Jim. one more Flaming Lip, Michael, and then there's another, you know, almost member of the Flaming Lips, Cliff, our, our drummer who plays live, so we just wanted to make Right. Let everybody
2: know they weren't just co- cowering in the corner. Ivan's we yeah. did invite. Right, you did. Yeah, but he's yeah. busy playing with the UFO. Exactly, yeah.
3: The UFO yeah. is part of the live show that the, uh, the Flaming Lips are taking around the country, uh, certain select venues. Uh, the yeah. UFO drops in, makes a visit, a visitation. We should point out the Flaming Lips have been around for 25 years. This is a band that, as Wayne Coyne once dis- described to me, couldn't play, had a singer that couldn't sing from a town that no one knew where it was. Wow. Nonetheless, <laughs> wow. nonetheless so here they are 25 years hey, you later. You can only go up from
1: there. Yeah. Right? What
2: an amazing <laughs> career. Well, we've done this before. You guys have been kind enough to come by Sound Opinions before in many incarnations. Greg and I have been fans for a long time. One of the things, uh, Wayne, uh, having written a book about you guys, came out last year. Right. Um, yeah. One of the things that fascinates me. It's a beautiful me. book. It is, yeah. Mm-hmm. Oh, you don't have to say that. Staring at sound. I didn't pay you. You don't, you don't have to say yeah, that. Yeah. Um, is that you have this history of a quarter century, and and Pink Floyd is a band both you, Stephen, and you, Wayne, love, and and I love, and we Mm. love. It's a Mm. common ground. One of the things I've always found fascinating about that career was they were really four different bands, yeah, over yeah. the course of 30 or 40 yeah, years. Exactly. You mean like, you know, they re- reinvented yeah. themselves. Sid act, yeah. Sid yeah. Second act and it. third act. Yeah, Right, in yeah. the yeah. dark side years yeah. and then the post, yeah. you know, Waters feuding with Gilmore years. Exactly, oh, yeah. And we're at a point with the Flaming Lips' extraordinary career where the same can be said of you guys. There were the indie rock 80s, there was the weird career, in the 90s alternative rock where sure suddenly yeah. you yeah. guys are on yeah. Beverly Hills 90210. Yeah, yeah. And there is whatever you mm. are today, which mm-hmm. is like nothing else on the music spectrum. Well, I think that the started
3: with the Soft Bulletin in 99, whole new audience came into the band um exactly and that was like the third or fourth incarnation of the band right Mm -hmm. Wayne Mm -hmm. and Stephen I mean it was yeah uh, absolutely it's amazing how uh, you know your manager Scott Booker once said to me every time it seemed like our head was on the chopping block and it was all over the career was done nobody wanted to hear flaming lips music anymore something remarkable would happen and the band would be reinvented and find a new generation of listeners and now uh, arguably more popular than ever playing you know sold out shows around the world Exactly, a uh, yeah. festival band.
4: Well, I mean you would you would like to think that we would change even if we were you know a mega successful band and thought just because you know we had these visions that we would go off in these weird directions anyway. But it's hard to say. I do sometimes think that the um you know this this we have no other choice no one likes what we're doing anyway we may as well just you know <laughs> pursue something else it does free you up to to follow without you know with utterly thinking, well, what's the worst that could happen? I mean, we could fail. And right. I, I think that's, if anything, there's a lesson to be learned in the Flaming Lips that don't fear failure. I mean, especially in art. I think it's, it's, the, it's the main thing that holds people back. They think, oh, well, maybe people won't like us. And, um, and I mean, in our sense, that's that's really, I think it's the only thing that saved us, that we we appeared to be, uh, brave when I think in, in reality we were just, we were, we had no choice. Yeah. yeah the things yeah. that happened
1: to us actually helped us out. Like, yeah. you know, when, when Ronald, Ronald Jones was a guitar player until 1996, and that was in the middle of our alternative rock heyday, mm-hmm. and it, as you know. And after he left, it sort of, we were forced to try to come up with some other way of making music, and it's something we wanted to do anyway. So it actually really worked out for the best. And then we ended up doing Zyrika and the Soft Bolton, and you're just, you're not the alternative guitar rock band anymore. You're doing something completely different.
3: You came into the band a little later. Wayne and Michael yeah, are, yeah. are sort of like the core members of the I Lips. I call them the elders. Yes, the, <laughs> elders, the elders. Yes, the elders. 25 years. So. What did you think of this band before you had joined it? What was your impression? of? Because you know the, the Lips of 19, mid-80s, people would listen to those records now, I think, Wayne, and think, huh? What? what? Yeah, yeah, That's the same band? I, well, yeah. I do that. I, yeah. I, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, yeah,
1: I think the first time I really listened to Flaming Lips was when in a pre and hamlets came out. Nineteen ninety, and that was well. That was a big change for the it band was. because I think that was the original drummer yeah. had quit, and yeah, they got yeah. Jonathan Donnie on guitar,
2: yeah. Nathan on drums, and 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 Jonathan I, and who went on to Mercury Rev, yeah.
4: yeah. And the musicality and the quality yeah. and the production, Dave Friedman, and all that did, did that was that was yeah. Everything that, got that stepped up, but that
1: was really the first yeah. stuff I knew. And for me, in my mind, it jibbed with exactly what I was wanting to hear, like loud, like psychedelic rock guitar with almost these uh, you know, there's, there's some hokum and balladry involved, you know, Rainy yeah. Baby stuff like that. So for me, it was it was everything I would was hoping would happen with music. so. But I didn't really have the past before that with the Flaming What
3: well, was so. interesting to me, too, about that record that you mentioned in a Priest-Driven Ambulance, you know, you get hit with this a lot now, Wayne, but at the time it was revelatory to hear in the midst of this time of sort of incredible cynicism and cooler than thouness going on in the indie rock community, you're doing this non-ironic cover of a Louis Armstrong, a song associated with Louis Armstrong, What a Wonderful World. Exactly, yeah. Mm-hmm. And this sort of sense of optimism and every day... Psychedelia is, like, everyday life's a psychedelic experience if you want it to be.
0: I see trees are green and red roses, too. I see them bloom for me and you. And I think to myself, myself, to myself, What a wonderful world.
4: We were trying and not not succeeding at all in being one of these life is miserable, sort of dark, brooding, heavy, psychedelic bands. And really, to my amazement, when I heard it afterwards, I really thought, you know, even though this is not ironic, we can't seem to find... Really, what is the message you we're saying Long in there say other than just what, what the song is about? And I
0: think to myself, think to myself, think to myself what a wonderful world.
2: I think it's, it's always interesting to hear you talk about it. What was it that connected when you heard this record? And then, you know, a, a matter of weeks later, basically, they say, hey, you know, you want to come by and see if you can play drums with Well, us? yeah, it wasn't that quick, but, <laughs>
1: I mean, it was it was pretty close, though. For me, I guess my, my impression was that, yeah, again, it was this great hard rock riff stuff, but it also had this other side of uh, just melancholy uh you know, almost like sort of ballady kind of songs or There You Are, that's another example. Just It's just acoustic and some weird yeah. sound effects. And
2: just to my ear, no one else is doing anything like that at that point. You're listening to Sound Opinions from Chicago Public Radio and American Public Media. We'll be back in a minute with more of our chat with the Flaming Lips.
0: And I watch them grow They'll learn much more Than I'll ever know
3: Welcome back to Sound Opinions from Chicago Public Radio and American Public Media. We're going to continue our conversation with Wayne Coyne and Stephen Drozd of the Fleming Lips and talk a little bit about their tenure with Warner Brothers Records. They came out of Oklahoma City in 1983, but it wasn't until 92 when they signed with Warners and released Hit to Death and the Future Head that the Lips recorded for a major label. When we had Wayne and Stephen in the studio last week, we asked them what it was like
4: to become major label artists. We'd seen a lot of bands signed to Warner Brothers, or bigger labels, or whatever, and still took it as this is just simply us doing our art. Who really cares? And our philosophy changed a bit then because we thought, well, if we've got this label that can spend a billion dollars promoting your record, why don't we make a, a record that could is worth the billion that you could do that if <laughs> if you wanted to? I mean, why why have them there and not take advantage of it? And I and I would say to people who think, well, isn't this some kind of Compromise. And it's not, I mean, I think to be imaginative, and especially the word creative, I mean, creative means. You'll brush your teeth um, with, with a spare tire if you need to. Whatever it takes, you'll, <laughs> you'll get it done. So part uh, part uh, of the uh, uniqueness uh,
2: of you, Wayne Corners, is that I'm you would actually try that. that, you know? that, that, that Stephen, was he like this? I mean, you know, you, we could give him three matchsticks and a roll of duct tape, and he would build a stage <laughs> set. it <laughs> we was duct tape, anything's
1: possible.
3: I want to get back to what Wayne was just saying about the ambition when you guys signed to Warners and the second album for Warners, I believe, Transmissions from the Satellite Heart. It didn't jibe with what you guys were doing earlier in the in the in the sense of that ambition. When I, I remember putting that record on, I back when they had cassettes, right? Sure. Uh, yeah. Got in advance of it uh, and, and stick it in a little Walkman, you know, and putting it on my headphones and listening to it in this uh, before this godforsaken show out in some suburb of Chicago. I was waiting for the show to start and I, you know, think oh, I'll listen to this record. And I remember just walking for an hour out into this field, listening to this record and having my mind blown, thinking I was listening to like <laughs> wow. f- 4D sound or something. Wow. Well, that's it was cool, like yeah. there I was hearing layers in the music, and I thought, how can this little cassette be communicating all this information to my brain wow. and overloading it? The skies are parting now. I've seen something really amazing happen. Wow. So with that record, Transmissions from the Satellite Heart, 1993, was there a sense of, you know, we're going to pour everything we've got into this, and we're going to make this really sonically layered beautiful record
4: even though nobody may ever hear it honestly it's worse not to make the record that you want because who knows that probably that could probably fail just as miserably too i mean we always knew that i I think this sense of just let's make the sort of record we want you go in there and you keep fighting away finding ideas turning mistakes into the you know the things that are, are really working for you you know your songs can take any shape they want you get to experiment you get to live with your ideas for a little while all that sort of stuff that, that's what we learned making those earliest records and by the time Stephen and Ronald came along I think we had a certain confidence that even even if we couldn't make records that anybody bought we could make cool sounding records that we would like anyway and yeah. you know at some point you, you really are just making art and you're saying you know it pleases us and wh- who knows what's going to happen
2: I think because of the sonic density that Greg was talking about, that incredible listening experience that that every Flaming Lips record is, you know... Often though, your songwriting gets short shrift, and and Stephen and Wayne, you guys really are, are the core of the songwriting team now. And for years, when you've done these radio interviews, we've been trying to get you to show us how how a song develops. Now you <laughs> think that this is not an interesting process, but I've had the experience of hearing some of your cassettes of you sitting right, yeah. in your living room with you know you got two crummy chords on that mm. ratty old acoustic guitar of yours, <laughs> and then it becomes oh yeah yeah that that's do you realize you know that's how it started what are you talking about or Stephen you've got the you know I got this little three note riff mm. sure mm. you know and then that becomes. So so we got the piano here. Will you show us a little bit how this actually – Should we think, do it
1: as like you name a song? Or do whatever you, want, t- whatever
2: you want. Whatever you want to play. Well, well, did we mention, mention
3: uh, She Don't Use Jelly? I mean, that as it's interesting because you guys did sort of get typecast with that song. It was your breakthrough hit. Yeah, mm-hmm. It was the uh, wiggy novelty hit. It, it got you guys typecast a little bit as a novelty band, even though when you really listen to the song in the context of that record, I thought it was a beautiful, poignant song. Uh, it was this bubblegum yeah, song with yeah. this poignant lyric – and at the same time, there was this amazing production going on around. Mm-hmm. It. But mm-hmm. yet, it sort of typecast you guys as kind of like okay, the well, novelty
1: one-hit wonder band. Yeah, right, that's right.
4: true. I think of anybody who gets a singular
1: sort of song. Yeah. you know, I mean, if if, well, if, if you it, compared it to like Radiohead and Creep, I think they still don't play Creep because they don't exactly. just like that connection of yeah. that and, part of their career. And, you know? But yeah. without
4: without anybody knowing, you, you know, having a simple vision of who you are, they never get you in the first place. So I we've, we we have accepted since then that it's better to get in there, whatever they think of you, and have them know at least one of your songs or, or your name. <laughs> you exist, right? Yeah. When we did She Don't Use Jelly, even when we were in the studio, I think we all thought, that's that's got a catchiness that could be like a hit. And so I think when the song started, we'll go over to the piano. Sure. All
1: right, we'll, sure. we'll go over to the piano. Hello, hello, hello.
4: So so I think um, the section of the song where it says um, I know a girl who mm-hmm. um, thinks of ghosts. I, I think that is like when you talk about this simple songwriting I don't even think I knew what the chords were per se but you play chords and you sing and this thing comes out and I do remember it came out Almost like you hear it in that sense, where it's a chord and that lyric Mm. and that melody. Yeah, you had
1: acoustic guitar and you're singing, and that was pretty much intact. Yeah, Yeah, and
4: you could say, well, that's that's a good enough start because it's a melody and it's chords and it's got a little a little point to the lyric and it's got a little you know it's got some hook to it. And so the hook was based around just that part.
0: I know a girl who thinks of ghosts. She'll make you breakfast. She'll make you toast, but she don't use butter, and she don't use cheese, she don't use jelly, or any of these, she uses
1: Vaseline. Of course, there's no piano on it, actually. Started.
4: Yeah, yeah, so it right. would just be cheap, you know, badly Acoustic played, guitar, you know, uh, yeah. simple chords.
1: But I think you
2: can well, hear wait that. A minute, now wait a minute. <laughs> now it is not logical uh, necessarily. You you just like you know you know I had this line thinks a ghost you know and then then the rest of the verse came you know most people Wayne wouldn't have gone to Vaseline. Where did well, the Vaseline wouldn't. come? I know. Why, she puts I know. Vaseline on her. What, what is he talking about?
4: Well, but a lot of times you know I mean and and a lot of songwriters will do this. They'll simply just sing what they a sound of a word that sounds cool and you mm-hmm. just will say well through somehow I'll I'll make that make sense in my song. For the same reason a a painter would put a piece of purple within a tree, he just said, you don't have to have any logic to it. In your mind, you understand why you would do it. Um, I knew that I had had this thought of putting on chapstick and butter on toast, and I, I do remember at some point someone saying, I don't like chapstick because you get it in your mouth, and, and I talked about, it. argumentative in the same way, isn't, isn't butter just like, <laughs> it, it, but you have to remember, this was back before you could buy chapstick that had just a bunch of flavors. I mean, nowadays, every, every lip balm is, is, is some great flavor. Back then, it was just simply some crappy petroleum jelly, and, and, it, and I mean, I'm glad that it was there, but it was, it was very boring. But this idea of Vaseline on toast Seemed almost too gross or too—it was just yeah. repellent. But in a sense, it really is not that big of a this deal. This is great. I, you know, you know I mean?
2: we've been talking about this song, him and I, since 1993. <laughs> That's the first time I've ever heard that. Because now, in my mind, I can see exactly you having a four-hour argument with somebody. Yeah, about exactly. how is putting Vaseline on your lips any different than putting butter on toast?
4: Right. Right. To me, it's just very—it's very normal. Yeah, it's Weird, Wayne. You're but weird. I could People understand don't talk about that stuff. where the you audience do. would would think of that song, especially Vaseline having the sexual connotation that it does and i, I think
2: well that's, that's the fun. other great thing yeah. because there is this school of rock critic fanzine theory that came out <laughs> around that time that this is a, a this song with its three verses is actually code for sex drugs and rock and roll yeah because right. we have the girl who goes to shows mm-hmm. we have the girl who puts you know vaseline on her toast, yeah. and then we have the the girl who uh, blows her nose or the guy, who, yeah, blows the the guy knows, who blows his nose blow nose right yeah yeah you know?
4: yeah, yeah. And then we have Cher, as I guess, because the last lyric is... <laughs> right, right, right,
0: I know a girl who <laughs> reminds me of Cher. <laughs> She's always changing the color of her hair. But you don't use nothing that you buy at the
4: store. She likes her hair, too. I can see them laughing in their head. <laughs> Be real orange, she uses tan. Now, that's not rock and roll. That's share with orange hair. But I can yeah. see where, so, yeah, do do if any, that? you know, if you're looking for an answer, as usual, you'll find it. And that's what I, I, I think it, uh, yeah. that's what you do. Yeah. yeah. <laughs>
3: The drum sound on that record is pretty remarkable. Um, was there any particular, I mean, other than the fact that you're a really good drummer, Stephen, what the heck was that sound? It was kind of <laughs> like, I described it as sort of bottomesque esque at the time. Yeah, it was yeah, very yeah. heavy, yeah. and you were writing these kind of
1: pop songs, but it had this huge sound. It was, yeah, it thought, was heavy. Yeah, we thought that was an, an interesting thing to try to do. I, I yeah. think where that came from for me originally was... Uh, and it's, you know, our drum sound ended up being so much more extreme than that, but uh, actually it was the drum sound on U2 War. I always thought Larry Mullen's drums were kind of distorted and overdriven, which mm-hmm. they are. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Nothing like we had on transmissions. And uh, we had recorded one song for transmissions called Teenagers in the Himalayas, <laughs> and uh, we just recorded the drum kit like you'd normally record a drum kit. with no In our r-
4: old in our old style. Yeah, just sense. you'd yeah. mic everything up, close yeah. to mics, maybe a little mm-hmm.
1: bit of room mics, and there was no overdriven sound or distortion. and mm-hmm. It just seemed real flat. And then luckily the very next song we did was Slow of Action, which was... The opposite of that, where the drums are completely blown out I and mean, they're distorted with an effects processor and through the board and all that. And then we just decided that would be the drum sound for the rest of the record, just toned yeah. down. And it tr-
4: that was truly Steven's doing. I mean, he, he had the style, but, but again, it's not just that you have this ability to play. I mean, when we're talking about r- r- records, you know, it's about how do, how do you record that? What is the sound? And if you stand in a room, like even if, if you stood in this room and Steven was playing, the fact is your ears would distort because he's playing so loud that your ears hear the sense of a distortion. But if your engineers were doing their job correctly, they would record it in there and there would be none of this distortion. It'd be this utterly clean, drums being hit. And we would always fight about this idea of like, man, it doesn't sound like that to me. It sounds, and really, Stephen just said, well, let's just distort it. And the the second you hear it, you're like, yeah. And then you Mm -hmm. just go a little bit further and say, well, let's distort it a bunch. And then it's just just a lucky combination.
0: It's all a waste of time again
3: I think a key part of this band was obviously the live performances. I can memorably recall the shows with that four-piece lineup. When Ronald leaves the band, clearly a kind of a watershed moment again, right? Stephen and Wayne, I mean, yeah. thought, like, and, okay, and what are we going to do now? We've got a different lineup all of a sudden. Yeah,
0: and,
4: and rightfully so. I mean, as we realized what endless potential this weird, shy guitar player had, he just exploded in unexpected ways that we sort of let him. We'd just be like, yeah, let him let him go, and especially live. And we all knew it was something. I mean, we played it up like, this is something. This hmm. is cool. <laughs> so what are we going to do? When, and then I sing. Then, know, and, then when, and then when he leaves, say, oh, it was nothing. Uh, you know, yeah. yeah. like.
1: Well, actually, cool when, I think it. on some basic levels, I think we started to get burnt out, too. I really do. Because uh, yeah. we yeah. recorded and we, we toured constantly. Mm. We were constantly yeah. doing stuff. And I think, you know, I, honestly, I started doing more drugs, and Ron became more and more of a paranoid and, just uh, just always agitated, and I think on just some, some real basic levels, we just got burnt out.
3: So the band re- really retooled at that point, and I remember the, the parking lot experiments. You would show up. You would ask people to show up voluntarily at a, at a parking garage. Exactly. Flyers. They and you're gonna flyers. Give, we're going to give you a, a, cassette. a cassette. Everybody's going to get handed a cassette with your car, and Wayne sort of in the carnival barker role with a megaphone saying, Start your engines, ladies and gentlemen. <laughs> One, two, three, countdown, and everybody presses the button. And the symphony from all these car Massive stereos would be going yeah. on. Yeah, yeah. And each of those cassettes was was had an individual track or an individual part. Was not yeah. the same thing exactly, right? It well, was, I mean,
4: it would depend. It was it you, you much like an orchestra. Yeah. If you wanted to, there to be forty John Coltranes playing, you put forty on tape yeah. playing different things. Or if you right. wanted to be a, a dog barking over there while while you know a, a, a harp player played right in front of you. Well, you just do it. I mean, it was it was meant as as organized sound, and you could really do whatever you wanted.
3: It was cacophony, but at the same time, everybody had this big, goofy smile on their face, kind of like, this is just ridiculous, and the, and the ridiculousness of it all was part of the fun. And,
4: and again, we have to sort of, the mindset of people at the time, I think we were all thinking, man, I wish something new would happen. I wish someone would take a chance. And whenever I say that, I always go. Why don't we? I mean, why don't we be the ones to do something
2: like that or take a chance or whatever? It was almost as if having the pressure off. Warner Brothers is going through a lot of changes here too. Well, exactly. all the people who Ooh, signed you yeah, the label yeah. were gone, you yeah. know, and it was almost, you know, I, I think the famous quote you had is we were like a cockroach scurrying under the rug. Exactly. You know, when you turn <laughs> yeah. on the light, we didn't want anybody to realize we were still around, so they couldn't fire us. Or and it, we'll just come back and make a record when there's a new regime. Yeah,
4: or not make too much of a fuss. Demand very much they're like uh, we're over here making art. Don't worry about us. Right. When you get exactly. Get your business sorted out. We'll be here to you know to help. But, you but
2: out. your last record only sold 19,000 copies and well, <laughs> well yeah, you know which is the chronic thing but you know yeah, so yeah. in retrospect we look at the history and it's like they did this two year period of, of uh, sonic adventurousness and, and and weirdness and then they came and gave us this pop masterpiece let's talk about Soft Bulletin Soft <laughs>
4: Well, I mean, I think the signature song, when people think of the, uh, if there's a song associated with this optimism or whatever, this thing that uh, accompanies the softball, it has to be like Race for the Prize. I mean, that's mm-hmm. become one of our songs. I don't even remember what our lives were like before we had a song like Race for the Prize, <laughs> you know? <laughs> the prize I think was a song that's the melody
1: the, it, how's the, the, the melody yeah there? I had that for a long time <laughs> 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 that thing there and we thought it sounded like it could be a car commercial yeah well actually the funny thing Wayne is like on Cloud's Taste there was a couple of songs that I brought in and Wayne turned them into Christmas at the Zoo and These songs about animals And I was like Man Jesus Christ I hope he doesn't do Another song about animals You know (laughs) And uh, so we've been Poking around with These melodies for a long time And then he came up With the lyrics That he did for Race for the Prize And that
2: Seemed to me That was a big turning point Because that was one Of the early songs
1: We did for that
2: You know now you're singing About jogging around the lake With your brother Yeah Racing for the Prize You know Mm -hmm. and, and, and And knowing your father is dying right. in, of mm-hmm. cancer and he's not there's nothing you know people say things like let's cure cancer well yeah. you know who who
4: yeah, who, yeah. Who, yeah. hope somebody you know. gets to work while i'm well yeah while I i'm I I don't know records.
2: if you could have written that directly about something that personal in no, your life I, I, no. the guy i met in 93 yeah. wasn't writing like well, that
4: well i mean that's what i mean i mean the experience changes changes you uh, luckily for me and the band in, in a sense it changed us for the better it made it seem like This was a way that we could do our art and express ourselves and still be a band and still be weird, but we could really sing about our inner life
0: without restriction.
3: going to continue our discussion with Wayne Coyne and Stephen Drozd of the Flaming Lips after a short break and then it's time for Jim to add a track to the Desert Island Jukebox. That's in a minute on Sound Opinions from Chicago Public Radio and American Public Media.
2: Sound opinions from Chicago Public Radio and American Public Media. I'm Jim DeRogatis, my partner is Greg Cott, and you are listening to a bit of Do You Realize by the Flaming Lips from Yoshimi Battles the Pink Robots. Do you... Yoshimi, along with the Soft Bulletin, marked a real departure for the band in terms of the way they wrote songs, the way they performed them live, and the sound of the group itself. Before we wrapped up our chat with Wayne Coyne and Stephen Droz, we asked them to play a song from one of these albums. If you guys could do
3: a song from uh, one of those records, I mean, just you know, pick one that you think is kind of well, representative. I mean, if there's
4: a, if there's a song, I mean, even though it's called Yoshimi Battles of the Pink Robots, so, I mean that song is in a sense i think still that bubblegum kind of thing yoshimi battles yeah. the pink robots has been interpreted a million different ways and yet it still feels like you understand everybody kind of understands what it's about still it, it that to me feels like a, a psychedelic whimsical song even though i think it's placed within but they can this, understand you know, david
3: and goliath they can understand and, the little again, yeah, powerpuff it, girl yeah, fighting yeah, this monster yeah, you know kind of
4: thing and um I don't think we struggled that much with that one. As, as the track goes, I think by then we were already finding a sound and a theme and a color to these things. And by the time we came up with the Yoshimi Battles the Pink Robots, the song, we felt like, yeah, that's going to work. The secret behind the Yoshimi record is that the, the, the robot kills itself, and Yoshimi is the only one that knows that. And so by her having this battle with this evil robot, this evil robot has sacrificed itself for Yoshimi, and Yoshimi learns a lot from this robot and says we should be more like this robot, yet everybody around her hails her as the hero that mm-hmm. killed off the evil robot, right. and yet she 's the only one that knows there 's something deeper going on, and so maybe it is those little themes that always keep it from just being oh, forgettable or un, you know one dimensional or whatever uh, but um, But the song I still think um, feels kind of just like a normal, whimsical. Cartoon song, so we'll play. We'll play a second of. Uh,
1: well, now we're playing it sort of uh, live like this. Anyway, we're sort of doing a stripped down, mm-hmm. just mm-hmm. a piano and singing version. So, uh...
4: and this was a song. This was a chord progression that Stephen had. And we didn't have anything for for the longest time until yeah, yeah. we stumbled upon this title: Yoshimi Battles of Pink Robots. And. Um, me being the only one that knew this sort of secret story behind there, you know.
0: Her name is Yoshime. She's a black belt in karate. Hey,
4: hey! And then Michael screams that (laughs) out. Forgot to
0: do that. Working for the city. She has to discipline her body Cause she knows that It's demanding To defeat those Evil machines I know she can beat them Oh Yoshime They don't Programmed to destroy us. She's gotta be strong to fight them. Ooh. So she's taking lots of vitamins. Cause she knows that, cause she knows that it'd be tragic, it'd be tragic if those evil. I know she can beat them. Oh, Yoshime, they don't believe it. But you won't let those robots eat me, Yoshime, they don't.
2: I See, early. that's great. Yeah. <laughs> Lovely. The critical response to uh, Yoshimi and to Soft Bulletin mm. were nothing short of ecstatic. Mm, totally. Pretty much. I mean, you know, critics yeah. kissed your butt. Totally. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Mystics pretty much got trashed it by, did, by yeah. quite a few critics. But I, I felt like that was inevitable.
1: Yeah, it was time
2: for the back. It's almost
4: like bring it on, and then and then we'll get done with it because this is what, and I I am, am guilty of this as well. You can only say a band is really genius and great and important. Because you know that gives you the right to say that they suck when they suck. You know what I mean? When we started to make it War with the Mystics, I didn't really want to make something that would have to be another do you realize? I wasn't yeah. consciously thinking, Man, we need another one of those so we can put out the greatest hits of, of optimistic funeral songs. I mean I was <laughs> I was just Yeah, you heard we, the were first really, game, yeah. we were really more than glad to just to win a Grammy for a song called um, the the wizard puts on his werewolf moccasins, or you know, yeah, we, yeah. We, you know. I mean, we were more than glad to go and be a weirdo rock band because we are that as well. And so we're not trying to be Bon Jovi. I mean, and so we probably aren't going to become Bon Jovi. You know, we're 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 always, if we're lucky, we're always thrown into the unknown. We're confused as well. But I think that's how some art has to be made.
2: You know it's like we've been doing this for hours already we could go for five hours more you guys have a show we do but thank you Stephen drost wayne Coyne. absolutely thank you very much
4: thanks for having us guys
5: i tell you little buddy this whole island is bewitched
0: Remember, we were shipwrecked together?
3: As often as possible in Sound Opinions, we like to take a trip to the desert island and play a record that we cannot live without. And this week, it's Jim's turn to pop a
2: quarter in the desert island jukebox. Thank you Greg for the big introduction. I was really tempted this week in the wake of uh, the Video Music Awards to play something about Britney Spears, <laughs> but instead I'm opting for this, my second best choice. Young Marble Giants are a fascinating band. Oh, excellent band. choice. I, like I knew that I'd much surprise- better than Britney. I knew I would surprise <laughs> you with this one. This is a group that is is I got to say probably 99 out of 100 listeners to the show haven't Ever heard of them. But it's one of those things where where the people who have have embraced them and embraced them deeply and they've changed their lives. I know fans who who have listened to the one and only album this group made for 25 years now and they love this band, they worship this band. You hear echoes of them in groups like Bell and Sebastian and all of those orchestral pop bands. Courtney Love and Hole yeah. on their best album, Live Through This, covered the song I'm going to play. Who were young marble giants? An incredible female vocalist, Alison Statton, and the brothers Stuart and Philip Moxham. And it's 1980. Punk rock has torn through England, turned the scene upside down, inside out. The new wave is continuing and raging strong. And then this group comes out on this then-tiny independent label, Rough Trade... And does completely the opposite of what's reigning supreme on the English charts. Young Marble Giants were punk by being quiet, Mm -hmm. very, very, very quiet, and minimalist. They took the ideas that Eno had explored on his ambient recordings and put them in a little bit more of a pop or rock setting using the barest of ingredients, a little bit of keyboard, Staten's incredible voice, some really smart lyrics— and most of all, space, a lot of space. The music is all about the space. And because there was so little there, it's fired people's imaginations forever. It's like you complete the picture. I think that's the key to their allure and never more so than on this track. As I said, Courtney turned this song into a very appropriate rocker on Hole's Live Through This. It's called uh, Credit in the Straight World. You know, at that point, most hated woman in rock and roll since Yoko Ono. she was saying, you know, I can't get no credit in the Mm -hmm. straight world. I think that what Young Marble Giants were saying when they first recorded this was that uh, we are all outsiders. You know, go for credit in the straight world, look a dealer in the eye, go for credit in the straight world, lost a leg, I lost an eye. You know, I'm never (laughs) going to get fit in. And yet here they are now, 1980, this album came out, Colossal Youth. It's just been reissued in a beautiful box set with a nice booklet with liner notes by uh, the English rock critic Simon Reynolds. It's got one disc with the entire Colossal Youth album, another disc of all the stray singles they ever did, their peel sessions, and they're reuniting in the spring for one show and one show only, just like Led Zeppelin. But we'll see. Maybe they'll come back. I think it'll be a great thing. Here's some credit in the straight world by Young Marble Giants.
0: in a going
2: Reddit in the Straight World by Young Marble Giants. I highly recommend Domino's new box set. Way cool. Colossal Youth is the name.
3: Greg, what do we have next week? Next week, Jim, we've got a band that uh, we absolutely loved, loved, loved. Uh, last year they came out with a terrific album with a great song called Roscoe. The band
2: Midlake from Texas is going to be live in the studio for an interview and a performance. As always, Greg, Sound Opinions was produced by Todd Bachman, Jason Saldana, Robin Lynn, and we had a little help this week from Brian Schwab, who engineered our session with the lips. As always, our executive producer, our fearless leader, the man to whom we look up, is Tori southside Malatia who uh, I heard has been on YouTube himself trying to make a name for himself.
3: On Sound Opinions, everyone's a critic. So give us a call on our hotline, one 859 1800
0: New messages.
6: Hey guys, uh, thanks for putting together a show that pretty much brought together the perfect storm of what's wrong with the, uh, the music industry at the moment—the uh, the self-parody of, of gangster rap, uh, the RIAA and ASCAP suing the little guy, uh, and this growing sense among the general public that uh, the only reason why people make music anymore is to make money. I think it's absolutely scandalous and hysterical that Vincent Candelaro can get on the air and tell you with a straight face that uh, he's helping artists and he's helping the music industry and he's promoting creativity uh, by going after a bar that has 50 seats in it or 100 seats in it and making sure that they pay their fee every year. The music industry spent 100 years convincing everyone that the way to make money was to sell physical media and now the physical media is vanishing. They're in a panic and so now they have to try to pretend that we were never paying for the physical media. We're paying for a licensing fee and everybody knows it's a load of crap except them. Thanks for exposing the truth guys. My name is Jim Marks. I'm from the South Side of Chicago. It, it, it. makes us all better, faster, stronger.
5: Now, it, not,
0: that don't kill that me, can only make us stronger. I need you to hurry up, man, cause I can't wait much longer. I know I got to be right, man, cause I can't get much stronger. Man, I've been waiting
2: all night, man, that's how long I've been on you.
5: Hi, this is John Collins from Minneapolis. I cannot believe what I just heard on the show with the two of you kissing Kanye West's ass. (laughs) The guy has no talent. You know, you keep talking about this great music, nowhere to be heard on the stuff you were playing, probably nowhere to be heard on the rest of the CD. You guys doing that is like Siskel and Ebert, you know, thinking house parties is as good as Citizen Kane or something. You guys need a reality check. Goodbye. Hey,
6: I just wanted to sound off on the Kanye uh, 50 Cent, Kenny Chesney thing. There's a problem when we buy into the record companies hyped up competition to sell albums, very little of which, and the revenue, why it goes to the actual artists. I think we should go see them live. I'm not a big fan of 50 Cent, violence, and so forth. I think there are a lot more positive artists out there, like Common, A Tribe Called Class, Kanye West has some positive messages, too, but... That's all. Uh, my name's Jason. Goodbye. This is Matt from Redlands, and Kanye West is going to blow 50 cents out of the water by
5: far. Yeah, this is uh, Mike Lump from Chicago, Illinois, and uh, I just wanted to be basically a comment of uh, agreeing with you guys as far as the whole kind of gangster rap versus the new breed of hip-hop, that being Kanye West. I get so sick and tired of this, this big boy bravado that artist like 50 Cent put on, just as you said, like, we have no weaknesses, you know, I'm, I'm going to shoot you if you don't like me. Whereas Kanye will totally map out a whole different sound for each album that he comes out with. And he challenges that B-Boy bravado, you know, with each album that he comes out with, which is something that I wish more hip-hop artists would do. It seems like hip-hop nowadays, more as uh, these these rappers that try to come out, they try to follow uh, people like 50 Cent with this, you know, this gangster bravado, but not knowing the roots of real hip-hop. The whole notion that hip hop is all about bang, bang, shoot them up is totally false. And I think that Kanye brings that out with his new album. It's very creative, it's a very different sound. And uh, you know, I just wanted to leave that comment with you and uh, definitely keep this debate going because I like the direction in which uh, it's uh, definitely going. So peace.